welcome to Side Alpha Leadership, a podcast where leaders can share their experiences and discuss what leadership means to them. I'm your host, David Polikoff. Hello and welcome to this month's edition of Side Alpha Leadership. I'm your host, David Polikoff. Uh, I have the pleasure of having on the phone with me a friend of mine that I've known for about five or six years, uh, Fire Chief Tom Coe. Uh, so without me rambling on, Tom, welcome to the show and please uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so yeah, I've been in the fire service for about 26 years. Uh, started out in the volunteer service in a small town in central Maryland that uh, ran a pretty small amount of calls, but uh, was very community-oriented. was fortunate to pick, uh, be picked up uh, in the career service uh, July of 2000 and uh, worked my way progressively through the ranks, uh, serving as a company-level officer, a battalion chief, uh, operations chief, and uh, about uh, a year ago now I started serving as uh, the chief of the department. And I know uh, at the time you were the acting chief, and just recently you, the, uh, it was cemented that you are now the fire chief, so congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was uh, the, the COVID gift to me. It happened right before the pandemic really broke loose. Right, and I know you've been doing good work over there, so I have friends in that department as well, and uh, I know you're doing good work. And I, too, uh, am currently serving in that same small uh, central Maryland County uh, that uh, that you also serve in. So uh, um, not a lot of calls, but that's how we like it because that's where we live, right? Yeah, and the, uh, the quality of the calls is, is definitely there. So you don't run a lot, but when uh, they call 911, it's because they really need you. Yeah, that's that's what I tell people is, you know, we, we not might not run a ton of calls, but, you know, when they put out a house fire, chances are it may not be like a full blaze fire, but there's usually some type of emergency going on uh, that they truly needed 911. So it doesn't get uh, abused like you'd see it get abused in, in some of the uh, the more urban uh, departments. Um so you worked your way up through the ranks. You got hired in, in 2000. And um, so when when you, uh, you, you started uh, in your department, how did you approach uh, – you started off as a rookie. Obviously, you were assigned to a station, and I know that, that the county's changed a little bit. Um, what was your first introduction to, to leadership and what a leader should be and, and – did you learn anything from from the officers? We all learn stuff, good and bad. So tell me some of the things that you learned as a young firefighter and things that you kind of put in the back of your mind and how you moved forward with that and how that made you into the leader that you are. Yeah, so I, I think really you learn things from good officers and from bad officers. Sometimes you learn more from, from those bad company-level officers you have. But uh, I've been re- really fortunate to serve under a lot of good leaders. And I think really to become a, a good leader, you've really got to learn uh, what it takes to be a good subordinate. So uh, from the day I stepped into the firehouse, I've been watching my surroundings and watching how officers interact uh, with the firefighters on their shift at their assignment and kind of putting myself through the paces of how would I handle different situations and do I think those situations, the way they were handled, were they effective or not? Did they lead to a positive outcome? And for the last 26 years, I've been taking a lot of little notes of saying, hey, if I'm ever presented with that situation, that's what I want to do. That's how I want to handle it. That worked really well. Uh, The one thing I figured out pretty early on, you know, folks like to define their leadership style. I don't think you can really classify 
uh, an effective leader in one specific style. I think a leader adapts to their surroundings, their situation, their environment, and employs the best tactics to resolve a situation. And I've been pretty fortunate to be flexible to adapt to my surroundings pretty well. Yeah, I know when we are called in to make decisions, you know, I've talked with with a bunch of guys, you know, um, that you you are as as firefighters or as any type of emergency service worker, we are called to make decisions based on imperfect information and 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 how we can you know kind of change on the fly. You know, it all stems from making sure that the safety of our our uh, our our people that are that are our subordinates comes as number one, and uh, the fire service. You know, we we accept that inherent risk, but we don't want to put anybody in that unnecessary risk. The whole you know risk a lot to save a lot mantra. But um, so when you first joined in the fire department, did you have aspirations? How far did you want to go? When I got hired in the fire service, uh, you know, at the time we had uh, sergeants lieutenants which were like the station officers and then the captains were kind of like what our battalion chiefs are now so my uh aspiration was to be a lieutenant which is what a captain is now i wanted to have my own station i never wanted to go any further and and yet you know here i am i've gone you know beyond that and uh you know through captain up to battalion chief so when you came in did you say like i'm gonna run this place one day or you just like hey you know what i'm gonna keep my head down and then you know just ride an engine ride a truck or whatever for the rest of my career yeah, so nothing could be farther from the truth of me having aspirations of being the fire chief of a, you know, a, a moderately sized fire department. That was never my career goal. My uh, my career goal was actually to retire as a captain of a rescue squad. Right. Uh, I really like uh, rescue work. Uh, you know, technical rescue has always been something I've liked to to dabble around in, and uh, that was my goal to retire off of a rescue squad. And uh, I managed to screw that career goal up a few years ago. And, and a lot of things drove that. Um, where I work is a, a pretty rapidly growing department. So uh, in July of 2000, our organization had 100 career firefighters. And now 20 years later, we've uh, surpassed the 500 career firefighter mark. So, you know, we've more than quadrupled in size in less than 20 years. Yeah. And that's proved a lot of challenges for us. So it, it's also provided me a lot of opportunity to advance uh, the wouldn't have been an opportunity in other organizations. So I was a lieutenant with three years on the job. I, I became a battalion chief with three years as a company officer, and I hung out at the battalion level for a while. Spent 10 years as a battalion chief and did some time in special operations, did some time in advanced life support. Uh, but the most fun I had was really as a company officer and as a field battalion chief, where you could really mold your folks and uh, come together as a team. Uh, the opportunity presented itself to become the operations chief, and that was a challenge that seemed a little daunting, but uh, I went for that. and was there for a few years before uh, our previous fire chief retired, and I got the opportunity to serve as the chief. So things have just kind of fallen in place for me, but uh, it's one of those situations where you've got to seize the opportunity when it comes. One of the things, ironically, that drove me to even apply for promotion and go through promotional processes was fear out of who I was going to work for, right? So we've all seen those marginal company-level officers, and you're like, I never want to be on that person's shift. And uh, I really use that as motivation that uh, if I didn't want to work for someone that might not uh, facilitate an effective response, then the only way I have something to say is if I put my hat in the ring and uh, accepted the challenge of taking on that position myself. And uh, that motivation's worked out pretty well for me in the past. 
it's funny um, when I was a captain, and I enjoyed my time as a captain because you know you you you're still you know with with the guys on the shift, you're still getting your hands dirty. Um, and I found myself have taken a couple of classes at the National Fire Academy and uh, a couple of uh, incident command classes when I was a captain, and I was kind of shocked of how. Uh, chief officers like assistant chiefs and deputy chiefs and even some fire chiefs, you know, were running command or lack thereof. I was I was floored that, you know, here you have these guys with, uh, you know, three, four, five bugles that couldn't command, you know, the simple house fire scenario. And they were fumbling all over the place. They were nervous. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I constantly was telling my wife, you know, we were at the National Fire Academy, I think, for a week. Uh, actually, two weeks. It was two back-to-back classes. And, uh you know, after like the third or fourth day of me just just being dismayed of is this where the fire service is? Is this where we're going? Is this you know it's kind of dangerous? My wife says you got a choice: you can shut up and and just you know do your thing or do something about it. And and uh, her thought her her um, what she was telling me was is that uh, if you don't like what's going on, then jump in the ring, become a chief, and change it. Or, or, or at least learn and, and try to change it. So it was like a put your money where your mouth is or the shit or get off the pot uh, mentality. So I did. And that's how I, I ended up in, in the role of battalion chief. And, and I love the job. You know, we don't, I don't get to go as many calls uh, as I used to, but, but I love the job. I like watching the guys do the work. So it was the same with me as, you know, I had no aspirations of, you know, of riding around in a chief's car, but, uh, you know, here I am. So... <clears throat> As you moved through lieutenant, how did you get prepared to become, you know, an officer? I know some departments have officer candidate school. You know, my department was a little slow on that. Uh, we're, we're doing it now, but it was mostly on-the-job training. And the problem is, is if you were at a slow house, you didn't get a lot of on-the-job training. And once you get promoted, you can be put anywhere in the county. So how did you prepare yourself to learn how to make decisions and how to recognize if things weren't going right and how to think on the fly and things like that. How did, how did your county or how did you get prepared for that? Yeah. So uh, our county did have a, a very short uh, officer candidate school. It was a two week, 10 day, you know, 80 hour class that threw different tactical and leadership uh, scenarios at us. But uh, I really think the bulk of my preparation for becoming a company level officer really started when I became a firefighter and being that subordinate firefighter and understanding what the officer expected of me, how I could communicate effectively back to them that something was completed or, uh, you know, whatever information I needed. Uh, On the operational front, I had the uh, advantage of having some volunteer experience behind me as a company level officer where, uh, you know, I'd led people before the, the administration and the disciplinary side of being a company level officer was something that, that really, in, until you get into it, uh, I really was a trial by fire there. And uh, one of the things that I think is so important about officership and leadership is really understanding and taking care of your people. So you've got to understand what takes them, makes them tick. You've got to understand what motivates them. You've got to understand where they want to go. And once you understand those things and uh, they have – they have your uh, respect and trust that you're going to help them get there, then the team really starts to come together. And uh, I was really fortunate uh, to have a pretty experienced shift when I became a company-level officer. Had uh, very few disciplinary issues. We went to lots of jobs together, and uh, we really just had fun. 
but all of that work to become a company-level officer really started as a firefighter uh, judging incidents of how would I handle this and what would I do or you know, given those size ups when I'm riding around in my personal car, if I pulled up and that third floor was on fire, what was my radio transmission? What would I request? Where's the water supply? Where's the fire department connection? And it all became second nature when I got in the right front seat of a fire engine then because uh, I practiced, as silly as that sounds, riding around in a Nissan Xterra. And it's funny because <clears throat> I remember when I was a lieutenant. And uh, I was assigned to a Bethesda station in downtown Bethesda. And I would, I was setting myself up so I could take the captain's test. And I remember when I would go out in PT, if I'd go out and run or whatever, and uh, I would just talk to myself about running through incidents. Like, what would I do with this? How would I say this on the scene? Um, I'd go up, you know, we were out riding around looking at buildings. You know, I would like, okay, if this was on fire, what would I tell my guys to do? How would I lead this? How would I take that initial command? So it's it's funny. A lot of the 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 firefighters that have been around for a long time that that uh, that true truly still enjoy the job i hear the similar stories of like oh yeah i used to uh you know you know pretend like this was happening and how would i handle this and what would i do about that and a lot of them even talked about how they would be talking to themselves you know while they're running an incident in their head um so i'm glad i'm not the only one now let me ask you a question when it comes to and I can't be the only one that thinks this way when it comes to uh, about how fires and buildings and things like that. When you go to a restaurant with your wife, do you look and when you're sitting and waiting for your food to come, do you look around and say, if this ha- if this is on fire, the fire is going to start over there. It's going to go up the wall. It'll go across the ceiling and it's going to do this. And how do we get out of here? And how what line would I pull down the stairs to get here? Tell me you do that. It drives my wife crazy. <laughs> so... Uh... So, you know, we'll go into a bar that's in a basement underneath a restaurant or something, and, and you think of all of the case studies on on civilian deaths in high-occupancy facilities, and you start looking around going, okay, something goes wrong, this is where we're heading. And she's like, she calls me Mr. Worst-Case Scenario because uh, I tear every situation apart before it happens to have a plan, and I think that's important. I agree. And and my wife, before we had kids, and even before she was my wife, she can't tell you how many times we would chase a column of smoke until it just didn't look like it was getting any closer (laughs) and we'd give up. But, uh, you know, we'd go to New York City for a vacation, but in disguise, I was going and interviewing some firefighters at different stations to do an article on nozzles or hose lines or whatever. So she's edited so many of my college papers. She knows more about the fire service than probably anybody that's not in the fire service should. So I'm glad I'm not the only one that does that and you know my wife doesn't think i'm crazy she just knows what she married into so but uh and and one of the things uh it'll drive uh folks that are uh non-ems oriented crazy for me to say this but uh our als delivery system uh, in the jurisdiction where i work is chase car driven right and uh, i was a firefighter paramedic for many years and the critical decision making skills that that i learned and the ability to remain calm under stress uh a lot of that's derived out of my time on the chase car. You know, when uh, when the BLS crew is waiting for the paramedic to arrive to make some critical decisions, take critical action, help might not be coming for a while, you know, life hangs in the balance. Um, some of those critical decision-making skills and the ability to remain calm under pressure uh, was really derived uh, through my experience in our, our EMS section for a while. 
And I'm sure that'll make plenty of people, you know, grimace as they listen to this, but but it's really a fact. And uh, you really have got to mold all your life skills and experiences together to 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 bode the best outcome when, when an emergency happens. Yeah, we, we have, uh, we've implemented some chase cars in the county. During the, uh, the COVID crisis, we were almost uh, wholesale uh, chase car um, driven. And, you know, personally, I think it worked out fairly well. It definitely took a lot of burden off the heavy apparatus that was driving up and down the road as staffing or manpower. Um, so having these, and, and we had it, so you had to either be a master firefighter paramedic or an officer in order to ride the chase car, or you could be a firefighter, but in order to be a firefighter in the chase car, you also had to be a paramedic preceptor. So you had a little bit of that administration management uh, back behind you. And just talking with those guys, you know, knowing that they could either get on the scene first or they would be on the scene uh, or heading down the road. They're having to make decisions without having their partner next to them uh, to bounce ideas off of. So it's it's kind of uh, it's all it's an all you show. So it doesn't make me grimace that you say that. I just I, I recognize that uh, you know you're by yourself, so you do have to make these decisions when it comes to how am I going to run the call. Um, you know what am I going to do if I have to upgrade or you know and, and, and whatnot. So I think that the, that. That chase car scenario, that, that that setting up of that chase car uh, environment, I think makes the uh, individual medics' uh, decision making uh, makes it easier for them to make decisions because they don't have anybody to bounce them off of, and and they recognize if the decision wasn't right and that they have to actually correct their action. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's all it's all on that singular medic, and a lot of pressure in those situations, and. And I think that's really helped my growth and decision making, and and um, you know making those moves under duress. And uh, one of the things you stated earlier is you talked about you know when you were an officer and, and talk about taking care of your people. And we usually talk about that when it comes to leadership of taking care of your people. And as an officer, how would you shield your guys from criticism from the battalion chief? You know, battalion chief gets comes to your station because he didn't like the way a call goes, and he's you know he wants somebody's ass, and he's you know, either that or they're on the scene and they're trying to do a hot wash and he's trying to yell at one of your firefighters because he doesn't like the way something happened is basically kind of bypassing you to go after one of your guys. How did you handle that situation? Well, and really the, the thing to do there is to try to set your shift up so that doesn't happen, right? So make sure you're operating as a unit that, that you communicate your needs and uh, that the tasks have been completed appropriate to the chief. But, uh, I think the best thing to do is um, just to be able to advocate for them and justify the reasons that things were done the way they were. Um, most likely your folks weren't operating independently. They should have been following your instructions as the company-level officer. But you, you've really got to professionally be able to um, to look out for your folks and, and make sure they don't take a beating if they don't deserve it. So uh, advocating for them, justifying the uh, actions they take as long as those actions were appropriate – uh, will help build a lot of trust and faith within the company, but uh, that's got to be done professionally. Yeah, I agree. And, and and even though, and I've had myself in that situation as a captain, where I've had a battalion chief trying to go after one of my guys, and uh, I would stand in between them and say, you know, if you know, respectfully, if if you've got a problem with my guys, then you've got a problem with me, and I need to hear it. And if there is an issue, I'll take care of it. Unless it was an immediate safety issue, if it's something that had to be stopped right then and there. But during the hot wash. 
you go through the officer, that's that's my personal opinion, and you allow that officer to take care of his people. So I kind of view it as as a battalion chief. If if somebody in, in a company didn't do what they were supposed to do or they did something that was flat out wrong, I look at the officer, there's a failure on your Absolutely. part, and how are you going to fix that? I'm not going to fix it. You know, and I've caught myself that way. And I actually had a captain step up to me and say, hey, look, I don't appreciate you talking to my guys that way. If you got a problem with one of my guys, you and I can talk about it and I'll take care of it from there. And I actually looked at him and I said, you are 100 percent right. And I apologize, you know, that I shouldn't be, you know, showing myself this way to your guys. If I got a problem with your guys, I'm going to come to you. So it was a lesson learned on my part. Um, that all comes down to to humility. So now let's fast forward. You're the battalion chief, and and uh, did you ever find yourself in that situation where you were kind of mad that something didn't go that way, and you wanted to go after the driver of the unit or maybe the lineman that didn't get the line incorrectly or or whatever, and uh, found yourself and I'm going to go right to the root of the problem and take care of this. And did you have an officer step up to you? So one of the most interesting character traits about me is uh, I'm my own worst critic. And uh, as soon as an incident's over, the first thing I do is tear apart everything I did to figure out ways I could have done it better. Then I'll get back to the office, and, and this might sound a little cheesy, but I'll review the incident, listen to it. There's an online resource radio reference that we use frequently to, uh, you know, to play back calls right after they happen. And I've found that um, although I might be beside myself on the incident scene because something didn't happen the way I wanted it or someone didn't respond to my command appropriately, uh, that even after the hot wash is over, the best thing for me to do is to go back to the office and review the tapes and listen to the call. There's so many perspectives on the fire ground that uh, at least the folks in my organization all make good decisions, and they make good decisions for good reasons. So sometimes the chief, the battalion chief, needs to just step back understand the perspective that 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 company was working within, review the tapes, and then go to their station and follow up about an incident. Uh, Because otherwise, it ends up being all emotion, and and nothing's really solved in that, that fashion. Yeah, that's emotion does play a, a, a big part into a lot of the things that we do, especially when we talk to our people. We're all type A personalities, and we all, you know, view an incident. And we can actually view it differently. Of, of that we have our ways of saying that, uh, well, it should have gone this way, and why didn't it go this way? As opposed to, what I like to do now is is ask the questions of, uh, you know, if we're doing a hot wash, I might look and say, why did you do this? And then let them answer me because the way I saw it is maybe I think they did something wrong, but when they explain it. I can actually get on board with it and say, okay, that might not be how I did it. It was just different, but it's not wrong. It's just different, which I've been told time and again in my career. Um, I had an incident as a a fairly new battalion chief. We had a a fire in a a garden apartment building, and I I told the rescue squad to do a search of a specific floor, and they had asked to split the crew. They came with six. It was a mutual aid company. And uh, I don't like splitting the crews because usually you'll have an officer with one and you don't have an officer with the other. <clears throat> and when I went to, we had to back everybody out because we had uh, the fire was over running the building. I did a par check real quick and I only got half of the rescue squad. And, they, and then the officer came back and says, uh, you have to find the other guys because we split our crew. And I was pretty pissed off about it. So, uh, I went back, and, and I, too, I listened to all the calls. Believe it or not, we have a program on our phone that, that uh, I can record all the calls, and I can go back and listen to it. And uh, I was pretty mad that this rescue squad split their crew because I don't like doing that. And sure enough, 
they called and you know rescue squad you know xyz uh command i've got six i'm gonna go ahead and split my crew are you okay with that and i said yes and uh it was on me and uh luckily you know i didn't lay into that particular captain um for splitting his crew, I said yes, and I don't remember it. And that's the importance of going back and, and, and being able to listen to your calls, watch the videos, so you can catch those things and so you can make yourself better. I, I listen to all my calls. Every work and fire I run, I get a copy of the tape and I keep it on the computer. So you're not the only one, but I do like going back and listening to making sure that uh, my directions were clear, you know, my instructions were clear, of, were we having some problems? Because there's times where I'll ask them to repeat a message several times because uh, I can't understand it. When I go back and listen to the tape, you can. I can. You can actually hear what they're saying, but I think a lot of the adrenaline and the things that are going on in the vehicle are, are, are distractors. What do you think? Absolutely. And, and like you said, how you frame those questions in your hot wash really sets the, tones of, the tone of how your companies receive you. And uh, I really think that uh, once you understand other companies' perspectives, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, we're on the fire ground. You know, it, it is a uh, paramilitary operation with one person in charge. But there's so many different perspectives on the fire ground. It's important for the incident commander to understand that as we review incident performance. And uh, I think you hit the nail right there in the head with uh, your example with the rescue squad. Yeah, and, and I like to ask questions now. I'll, I'll always ask why. Why did you do that? Why did you do this? Um, and, and I I like to start the house wash off with, uh, you know, like, tell me some of the th- Tell me what you did. You know, ask the first couple of companies, what did you do? What did you see? And then I'll, then I'll challenge them. I said, all right, tell me some things that didn't go right. And I'll start off with myself and I'll say, you know, hey, I, uh, I, I didn't make my objectives clear when I called you guys. There was a little bit of a concern or issue that the line didn't get where it was supposed to get. And that's on me because I didn't really frame it how I wanted it to be. In my mind, I thought I said what I wanted to happen, but obviously you didn't hear it that way. So that's on me. And then I'll go around and, and you know, I'll find that people are, are critical of themselves as well, which is good because you want to be critical of yourself so you can learn. Um and I'll, and they'll be willing to give me, hey, this this could have gone better. Hey, we didn't, you know, one of the couplings got caught on a tire as we were, you know, on one of the parked vehicles or whatever. I didn't have somebody out. The door shut on the line. I didn't shock the door. So these are all things that uh, that we can improve upon. And, and I like hearing people being able to tell me, you know, what went right and also what went wrong because not every fire is perfect. But on the flip side, if you have a fire and everything went right, I tell people, don't go and nitpick and try to find things that are wrong just so you can find things that are wrong. If everything went okay, everything went okay and move on. Agreed. Agreed. So we talk about making decisions, and, and I've had some conversations with some officers and firefighters around the kitchen table uh, when I do my rounds, and we talk about making decisions, and it seems the overwhelming answer that I get back is that Officers are afraid to make decisions on the fire ground. Do you see that, or are you hearing that where you are? So uh, I really don't see that as being an issue where I'm at. Uh, So we are a a protocol or policy-driven structure fire response organization that defines um, unit tasking by, you know, their dispatch or arrival order. And um, our folks go right to work, and we're pretty fortunate for that. Um, I think the biggest issue in decision-making uh, is failure to make a decision. And, and like I said, we're fortunate that a lot of our folks aren't failing to make a decision. And uh, you stutter on the fire ground. You think too much. You don't make that solid decision based on the Im- information that's immediately in front of you. 
uh, everything's going to start to to go down the drain. Yeah. So I think sometimes, well, actually most of the time, making a bad decision isn't nearly as bad as failing to make a decision at all. Yeah, that's what I find is it's not necessarily the bad decision because I can deal with that. We can talk about it and move on from it. I have I don't have an issue. I mean, as long as the decision didn't involve somebody getting hurt or killed, but uh, making a bad decision or not making the best decision, um, I'm okay with that. We'll talk about it and we'll move forward from it. And I tell people, I said, I don't have a problem if you make a bad decision and you know we can learn from it. I said, if you keep making the same bad decision, then I'm gonna think something's wrong with you and we got to take care of that. But um, the lack of decisions is is where I kind of get the rub of uh, officers that de- they don't want to make decisions or being able to think on the fly. It's like, all right, I have to do this. I have to lay out. I have to do this. And if that doesn't happen or the plan that, that they wanted to put in play isn't going to work, they kind of get you know, like a vapor lock and, and they can't make a decision. And then somebody else on the fire ground is going to have to, you know, start to rework that problem. And I asked, you know, why do they, why do people feel that officers are afraid to make decisions? And the number one answer is always like, Oh, they're afraid they're going to get in trouble. And I always challenge right. them. I said, like, well, who's getting in trouble? And you know, then the next answer is, well, well, you know, you know, they're going to get mad. Who's there? Who's they? Cause they are responsible for a lot of stuff in the fire service. But, um, and I asked him, I said, give me an instant where somebody got in trouble for making a decision. And they usually can't. And, and that's what I said. I said, we want you guys to make decisions. We, whether they're the best decisions or not the best decisions, the only way you get good is to make decisions. And, and uh, that's what I try to instill on my, my guys. Um, yeah, we're a policy-driven department as well. We have our structural firefighting policy, our incident response policy, and the things that we're supposed to do. But there are times where we have to deviate off from that, and the guys are going to have to be able to think think on the fly and be able to to be comfortable doing that. As you moved through the ranks, as you uh, you became a captain, you said you were a lieutenant uh, for three years, and then you became a captain after that. No, so actually, our organization was so small there was no captain rank. That's, that's, that's right. That's been added in, but our company level officers were originally sergeants, then retitled to lieutenants. And then the next jump from there was a battalion officer, so so chief after that. How was the jump going from riding the front seat to being the incident commander? How did you set yourself up for that? And I know you had some some volunteer time, you know, in the neighboring department, but, uh, you know, for being on the job, how did you prepare yourself to become an incident commander as opposed to just, you know, that short initial incident commander, company officer, you know, leading your guys in and, and you know, kind of just focusing on one task? Yeah, so very similar to my transition to a company-level officer. Uh, as a, as a company-level officer, it all starts with, you know, initially establishing command, communicating your needs out uh, to the responding units, and then transitioning when the chief officer arrives. Um, so as a company-level officer, I'd frequently establish command, you know, just like all the other company officers around the nation do. And um, then when the chief would show up, I'd make sure they had the intel they needed and really worked on my communication skills. Once I became a battalion chief, my biggest struggle was staying in the car. So I actually became a battalion chief right around the time of the nation where the big debate was in vehicle command or at the back of the vehicle command, right, inside, outside. And I was a a quick subscriber to the in-vehicle command stance just to really control the environment, the noise, um, and – and really, my transition was pretty smooth because once I was locked in the vehicle, I didn't wander around the fire ground. 
I was able to have all the tools I needed av immediately available, available to me, and I was able to control all the distractions around me. So uh, just as when I was a company-level officer, I'd go back and, and internally critique each call I went on and tried to find something to improve on every call I responded to. Um, I took feedback as a battalion chief from my company-level officers. Hey, did that make sense? Did I communicate effectively to you? Did I give you the direction you needed? And, and those discussions in the fire station, I don't think jeopardized my credibility as a command officer, but allowed me to validate that uh, my instructions and communication techniques with my subordinates was effective. Yeah, that's, I, I find that the, that that humility of being able to go to your, your officers, you, you know, the, your subordinates, and saying, like, you know, <clears throat> what did you think of that? How did that go? How did I sound? You know, this is, you know, no retaliation, just you and me talking. Is there anything that you think I could improve upon? And uh, take that criticism and, and, and move forward with it. Um, it was, for me, you know, going from captain to, you know, battalion chief was, it was a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, a transition to, you know, we would take that initial command. I think that's the way most mid-Atlantic departments work now is, uh, at least in the Baltimore, Washington metro areas, they have that initial command and it's transferred over to the chief. Um, the inside outside is still a debate. There is an article in August of 2018 in fire engineering that was written by yours truly, as well as, uh, with Frank Ritchie, we, t we debated the inside outside command. Um, it's run two different ways. I don't have a problem with people running command from the outside of the vehicle providing you stay there. Um, once the green light goes on, that's the command post, and you have to stay there because people are going to that uh, command post to get their instructions if it's not given on the radio. There's nothing that irritates me more than you get on the scene, and we do have uh, chiefs that wander in, in, in our volunteer departments that uh, you can't find them on the fire ground. You have no idea where they are, right. and uh, <clears throat> it irks me. It's really funny. So as a company-level officer, you know, I was always looking to get my crew engaged in the best assignment possible. So uh, I would be in the incident commander's face just so when they needed somebody to do something, I was right there. And as a company-level officer, I thought, man, that was the ticket to the good jobs, right? That was the ticket to get him where I wanted to get. And then as a command officer, that annoyed the living crap out of me. Right. Uh, you know, you just need space to think, um, space to to, to make sure everything's covered, and uh, that company level officer that's in your face, uh, that was always a challenge. So uh, that really sold me on staying in the car. But the key message is, no matter how you command the fire ground, command the fire ground. Um, you can do it from the back of the vehicle. You can do it from inside the vehicle. You can do it from three blocks away if you want. But just make sure you maintain your command presence. Exactly. And, and even if, you know, we call what I call that as command, I call it creep. You know, you start having, you know, especially when you got a task force that's coming in and you tell them to report to the command post and you're going to have like 15 guys that are around you and they're like in your face. They're trying to get in your your line of sight so you can pick me, pick me, pick me type of deal. Um, you know, and like you said, as a company officer, it's great. Yeah, I'm going to get the good spot. But as the command officer, it's like get get away from me. And uh, I know a lot of the departments that, that do command uh, from the outside of the vehicle, a lot of them are fortunate enough that they have drivers. You know, where I am, I don't have a driver. So I'm kind of on my own. We get two battalion chiefs on the call, so that second battalion chief will be coming to my vehicle. But uh, everybody knows you don't come up and knock on the window, you know, unless it's an emergency. And if it's an emergency, you should be telling me on the radio. Uh, so you don't come knock on the window, and once we have that second chief in the car, they go around to the passenger side, and everything gets funneled through that other chief because the incident commander who's, who's in the driver's seat 
is focusing on what's happening, listening to the radio and what's happening to the building. Um, so we're pretty strict about that. The only thing I don't have that I wish we did was tented windows. If I could get a limo tent on my windows, I'd be much happier. But uh, that's 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 probably for another another, uh, another chief to decide decide on that. But uh, yeah, the inside outside it doesn't matter to me as long as you're at the incident command post. So. We all use, well, I don't want to say we all use, but majority of the country uses the NIMS system. Um, how did you transition into using using the NIMS system, and do you find it successful? Do you guys use a hybrid? I know another county uses kind of a hybrid of the NIMS system, but we, we're straight flat out with the NIMS. Yeah, so so I, I guess my experience with NIMS and the incident management system really began with my home jurisdiction's transition to an 800 megahertz radio system and there was much more concentration on terminology and communication pathways and and the communications model so um uh, you know that's 20 plus years ago obviously nims and ics or ims has changed but uh, our organization is compliant with and we try to be very structured with our terminology uh, it's a struggle for us because a lot of folks that volunteer in our jurisdiction work somewhere else um, or our career personnel, you know, have experience in other jurisdictions and their speaking order uh, might be different than how we do it here. So that's it's a struggle, but uh, we're working really hard to maintain constant, consistent terminology so everybody's on the same page. Yeah, we try to when I when I teach people, you know, when we're talking about uh, incident command and things like that, I tell them just just use plain talk, just use plain speak. Um, you don't have to get uh, all these fancy terms or anything like that. Just talk on the radio like you're talking to somebody and tell them what you want them to do. Um, the only uh, deviation from that is when we start talking about groups and and um, divisions and, and things like that and the sides of the building. But other than that, I tell them just use plain talk. Don't try to gussy it up or anything like that because you're going to confuse the people on the fire ground. Uh, we do a ton of mutual aid in our county, and um, we're fortunate enough, with the exception of one county, all the other counties that we mutual aid with, we all are on the same page when we're doing um, – uh, command or when we're, we're running calls it's all done through the NIMS system you know little variations here and there which which pertain to uh, each jurisdiction so so after you uh, you did your company officer now you said you were a captain for how long so oh, actually I'm sorry you weren't a captain you went from yep. lieutenant for three years right to battalion lieutenant chief for three years then I became a battalion chief and uh, when I became a battalion chief that was a new rank within our organization right so um it was a learning uh, learning uh, curve for me and a learning curve for the organization. We actually sent uh, our new battalion chiefs down to the jurisdiction where you work right. uh, for some ride-along experience just to kind of understand job responsibilities and tasks that needed accomplished. So um, uh, we all kind of grew together. The company-level officers didn't really know what to expect up here when the battalion chiefs got put in. The battalion chiefs were kind of feeling themselves out as we worked with our uh, volunteer partners, and it all worked out pretty well. Uh, the biggest thing is uh, how you treat people on the fire ground, in the fire station, you know, making sure that you treat people with respect, that you listen to their thoughts and their ideas, and uh, that you're consistent in your messaging regardless of who you're talking to. And um, treating people in that capacity has always boded me well uh, as I've moved through the ranks. So uh, my time in a, as a battalion chief was uh, just shy of 10 years. 
And uh, like I said, that was everything from serving as a field battalion, overseeing up to 10 stations, uh, to working in our EMS office, uh, to coordinating some of our special operations response capabilities. And um, that, that provided me a really uh, nice wide platform of experience as I moved up to be the operations chief. And that's one of the things I found um, as a senior manager in the fire service is that it's so important for folks to experience different areas of the agency as they progress through the organization. It's uh, everybody wants to go to fires. You know, everybody wants to ride the ladder truck, the rescue squad, um, the engine company. But it's important to take time throughout your career to experience all areas of your organization, whether it be the fire marshal's office or the training center. Um, it's going to bode you well as you move through your organization just to have a wider breadth of experience. Yeah, I, I did. I've done operations my entire career. Fortunately, I, uh, you know, I worked at our training academy. So even though I wasn't assigned to the training division, I had, you know, I had my hands still do pretty deep in training and, and, uh, went from, you know, teaching the firefighter classes to now we're doing our command competencies, which I really enjoy doing. We get to put these programs together and uh, we'll talk about that in a few minutes because I know you guys have something similar to that. You know, <clears throat> as a battalion chief, and, and it was a new rank, and I know you, you started off with maybe one or two battalion chiefs and, and uh, your county's a big county. It's very spread out. Um, 664 square miles of fun. Right. I think ours is like 550. So it's definitely, it's definitely big. And you go from the urban, uh, uh, environment all the way out to the, to the most rural, uh, environment. And you have, um, industry as well as water, as well as, you know, all the special ops things that you could get into rail and, and whatnot. When, as a battalion chief, you know, you, you do your rounds and you go to the different firehouses, what would your typical, uh, you know, walking into the firehouse, you know, as a new battalion chief, um, how did you talk to your guys and, and, and how did they accept you and respond to you uh, coming around? And I, was, I would assume you went to most of the stations when you were working on your shift. Yeah, so I started out, uh, when I became a battalion chief, we had one shift work battalion that was on 24-7, 365. And my initial assignment was the day work battalion where I covered uh, oversight of our day work stations. So the stations were covered or assisted with career staff during the day, but then had volunteers during the day, nights, and weekends. So um, my stations were spread all throughout the county, and I had a goal of making sure I got to every one of them at least every other day. Uh, and, and you go through the door, really just find out what's going on in their life. How's life at the station? Uh, find out kind of what they want to do for training. And like I said earlier, finding out what their career aspirations are so you can best direct them and mentor them to get them uh, to meet their goals. But uh, I'm a pretty laid-back guy that likes to have a lot of fun, so uh, I really miss station life in the fire station and miss that as a battalion chief. So I tried to soak up as much of that during my station visits as possible. So uh, it was very much the family atmosphere. And uh, everybody respected that as I went around to the fire stations. You know, there was no need for everyone to tense up when the battalion chief was there. Uh, everybody had a job to do. Everybody did it. And uh, my goal was really just to gauge if they had all the tools they needed to complete their tasks at their station. And if they didn't, it was my job to help get it for them. And um, just having that attitude as you go in the fire station uh, allowed our folks to embrace the battalion chiefs when they came in and, and not lock up with the, you know, the, the announcement over the intercom, chiefs here, uh, everybody throwing their uniform. Um, that, that wasn't the environment when I was a battalion chief. 
how hard was it going from, you know, station officer, you know, from the lieutenant to being the battalion chief? And then how did you manage? Because you do as a battalion chief, as the the supervisor, you know, of those stations, you, you have to figure out a way to kind of pull yourself back that you're you you want to be one of the guys, but you're not really one of the guys, if you know what I mean. How did you deal with that, and how hard did you find find yourself in that well, position? Yeah, one of the hardest things was learning how to supervise supervisors and ensuring that they were treating their folks appropriately, carrying them through with discipline as needed. Um, but quite honestly, uh, I found it a lot more challenging on the personnel front being a company-level officer than than it was to be a battalion chief. So as a company-level officer, you know, you are effectively family with your coworkers. And when someone on the shift screws up, you know, you know, goes against policy and, and needs to be disciplined, the company-level officer has to do that, and they have to live with that person for the remainder of their shift. And uh, in some of our fire stations, that's a very small area where there's nowhere for anyone to get away from each other. And that was a real challenge as a company-level officer to address issues appropriately and sternly, but still uh still remain uh in that family atmosphere as as you get around the station as a battalion chief it was a lot easier to address those things right in and out take care of business moving on to the next firehouse but that was a key difference between a company level officer and a battalion chief that i found to be a challenge in the issuance of discipline it's uh i find it uh difficult for me and i I like going and i like sitting down and talking with the guys and i i do my best not to get worked up you know into the rumor mill when people start talking about this or that i try to separate myself away from that um to to be appropriate um but i tell the guys you know i like to come in maybe 10 15 minutes kind of bs a little bit find out what's going on try to take that pulse of what's going on in the station find out if there's anything brewing you know any issues that might be creeping or anything like that um but the guys know if 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 i sit down at the at the kitchen table and we start talking fireman shit it's going to be difficult to get rid of me because i love kitchen table talking (laughs) and uh you know my buddy frank ritchie tells me he says you need to understand when how long you have to be there chief officer should be there shake some hands tell what's going on and then leave so you can give those guys time to talk about you when you're not there and um so because it happens whether you want it to or not exactly and you got to know what's coming but i love just sitting down at the kitchen table and picking brains especially with the new people that are coming in um they have a lot to offer um when you sit down at the kitchen table to hear what their views are, what have you noticed? You know, and we'll talk about your time as an ops chief, but but as as the the fire chief of the department now, what are you noticing with your new people? I mean, you you're the man now. You 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 see these new people, and and you have these graduation classes. What are you seeing of of these recruits that are coming in based on what they were maybe ten fifteen years ago? So at least in in our jurisdiction, there is a rejuvenation to learning the craft of firemanship. And that's pretty exciting for me. So uh, these folks that are coming through the door, they might not necessarily have any previous – they might not have any previous experience in the fire service. But once they get done the academy, they're really hooked and really engaged in furthering their training and, and really learning and honing their craft. And that that's pretty exciting for us um, here. And that's something that, that kind of was missing for a few years, and, and it's good to see that back. Yeah, you've got some good guys over there. I know, I know many of them, and uh, I follow their web pages and their Instagrams, and and I see, especially in your city departments, in in the city, that they they are uh, really uh, 
embracing the training and always trying to do something and, and putting something out there. So it shows some good company pride. And, and I like seeing that, uh, you know, we're going to constantly train and making sure that when the 911 calls is given, we are uh, we're ready to do the job. I see the same thing at my department. You know, I follow the social medias uh, pages for the, the different stations and battalions in my department and, and the people really want to do stuff and uh, they're not just kind of sitting around. So I do see that same rejuvenation. And one thing I have noticed is these new recruits that are coming in, a lot of them are smart. They're very smart people. Some have college educations, some don't, but just the, the, the life experiences that they've gained with, you know, having, uh, Everything at the palm of your hand, literally, uh, if you want to know something, you can type it in on, on your smartphone where when I started, we didn't even have, you know, cell phones. And uh, we definitely, uh, the only computers we had were these word processing Wang computers. So these firefighters that are coming in have the whole world at their hand and that they can constantly um, look anything up and have that an- information uh, right there at their fingertips. So these guys that are coming in, they're, they're super smart. Um, they've come from different walks of life. Not all of them are 18 year old kids. Some of them are older. Um, and they've had some previous experiences in other things that, uh, are a bonus when it comes to, uh, to being in the fire service, whether it be, you know, a contractor or electrical engineer or whatever. So are you finding that with your recruits that are coming in as well? Absolutely. And and the motivation we speak of of training and furthering their craft is contagious. So that's really started to catch on across the, um, across the, the agency. And it, it's really a, a testament to a lot of the key leaders we've had come through our training academy. So we've had some real motivated folks, whether they recruit class coordinators, um, class commanders, you know, the, the command staff of our training academy has really set our recruits up. To, to really hit this ground running with motivation, capitalizing on their previous life experience that they brought to the organization with them. So um, I'm really excited with the new batch of folks that we've got coming through the door. And that's what I try to uh, tell people is that, you know, when, I, when I'm teaching a class or, you know, we're talking about being a, a boss or talking about leadership, I, I tell them, I said, don't ever walk in the room thinking that you're the smartest person in the room because you've got more bugles on your collar pins or you've got more time in the fire service because there's somebody out there that's smarter than you and, and uh, you're going to end up getting a call to the floor on, on some of these things. So, so you got to go in, you know, with, with that little bit of humility that, uh, you know, hey, what do you know? Where are you from and what do you got? And, and uh, knowing your people that way uh, could pay dividends in the future, especially when it comes to you've got a project that's happening. You might have that's right up somebody's alley. So. These guys that are coming in are pretty smart, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited seeing these new people that are coming in and, and how they are approaching the job. And uh, the biggest thing is, is we got to get them back into this, the work ethic of how a mop and a broom work, because a lot of people have never done that in their life, which kind of floors me. But uh, you know, you got to teach them how to make a pot of coffee, um, how to how to mop a floor, how to sweep a floor, how to clean a toilet. It's menial stuff, but that's all part of the job as well. We'll we'll get them there. We'll get them there. Exactly. Yeah, just uh. Just this past Friday, we had uh, one of our recruit classes, culminating events, uh, which is we call night operations. It was previously referred to as Hell Night, but it's uh, 12 hours of uh, incident after incident simulation where they ride the uh, apparatus around our training grounds and, and mitigate emergencies as a recruit class. So I was pretty fortunate. Uh, once the work was done in the office, I spent uh, about three hours down riding with the class, driving the engine, going to calls, hanging out with them, really connecting with the recruit class, and and I'm just 
incredibly amped up about the caliber of folks that we're pushing through in our academies right now. That's good. And I tell you what, whether you know it or not, the people in the field like seeing the bosses, uh, contrary to popular belief. They want to see the bosses. They want to hear from them. They want to know what's going on. Um, and that kind of is going to segue, segue into this next part is, as, the, as a battalion chief, did your chief officers that were above you, your deputies, your, your ops chief, your fire chief, did they view the battalion chief as that bridge between station operations and management did they call upon you guys to 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 let them know what's going on and how things are or do they just try to figure it out for themselves no we that the battalion chief position in my organization has always been that middle manager that really takes things from headquarters and gets them to the stations and brings intel back of what the needs are at the station level back to headquarters and it's such a pivotal position in the success of an organization how they interact with the field, I mean, effectively, you think they're really the 24-7 face of the command staff of the fire department. How they interact with uh, our responders, both career and volunteer, uh, is really pivotal to the success of our organization. Yeah, I agree. And I've, I've told people time and again, I said, look, the battalion chief is that bridge. We are we have our foot in, in, admi- in the administrative um, upper management part as well as in the station part and in and I, I tell, you know, I tell our ops chief and I even tell our fire chief, if you want to know what's going on in the fire department, don't ask the duty chief. Don't ask the ops chief. Ask the battalion chief because they see it. They, if they are respected by the, the, the company officers and, and the people that they run with, and they're going to tell them things. And we are your sounding board. We can bring that stuff back to you. So any chief officer that's listening to this. Use your battalion chiefs to that capacity to find out what's going on. What things do I need to know about? What what is brewing that I might need to cut off? What good things are happening? You know things like that. Um, so as we move through, as you become the operations chief and you held that position for a while, how did that change you as a firefighter? Obviously, you're not doing it anymore. You're not. You don't really get to take command. Not or, nearly as much as I'd like to. Right. But how did you, did you get out of your office? Did you go visit the people or were you mired in paperwork? Yeah, so uh, one of the things our organization does is Tuesday morning station visits. So every Tuesday morning, our senior staff goes to a fire station and, uh, you know, interacts with the troops for about two hours, uh, tries to kill off rumors, tries to give them good information and really get a pulse for what's going on in each of our stations. And that's really, um, really been a good thing for us. Uh, really helps feed that feedback loop that we can find out kind of what what our needs are out on the street but uh historically our agency's absolutely been engaged from the senior staff level in the fire stations when i became the ops chief it was a real challenge for me because you know i want to run calls right i want to go to fires want to help cut people out of cars and uh, at headquarters you really just don't get to do that every day like you do on the stations but uh the really neat thing is when you start to realize the impact you can have three, five years from now in an organization and uh, getting things done and and setting things up. So um, that was a really rough transition for me to not be uh, reacting uh, as soon as the pager went off or the station alert hit uh, because I got other stuff to do. The uh, and and it's it's that way for me as well. I mean, I still get to run calls. It's obviously not, not as many as we used to. Um, some day some days are a little bit boring. You know, some not. Um, 
I've always teased, you know, our ops chief. I said, if I was ever in your position, I said, I would drive the fire chief nuts because I'd never be in my office. I'd always be in some firehouse finding out what's going on. Um, but I think it's key. It's I think it's imperative that that senior management gets to the station and, and talks to these guys. So the people in the firehouse, especially the newer guys, realize that, hey, this guy's human just like I am. He puts his pants on just like I do. He's got issues, you know, he's got concerns and things like that just like I do. And and uh, he's not unapproachable. I mean, obviously, you'd go through the chain of command if you had something going on. But here's a guy that can sit down at the table with a cup of coffee and just say, hey, guys, what's new? What's going on? What have you heard? What kind of questions do you have? Uh, I was fortunate enough to, to bring our ops chief out a couple of a couple of times um, for surprise visits. He just rode with me for the day, and we sat down. I said, bring everybody in the kitchen. We sat down and said, hey, ops chief's here today. Um, what questions do you have? And they're just kind of looking around, kind of concerned, like, you know, well, what did we do wrong? It's, guys, this is your chance to, to ask questions. And and I got to give him props. You know, our ops chief, he took notes and things that he didn't have answers for. He uh, he got the answers. He got them back to me in a timely manner. So that paid dividends uh, when it comes to gaining the respect and, and uh, in your organization from your people. So, again, chief officers that are out there listening is never think you're too good that you, you can't go to these firehouses. You have to know what's going on with your people. And they want to see you. They they want to see the boss. Uh, whether whether the bosses believe it or not, they, they definitely want to see the bosses. So now as as the fire chief, well, you, you've you've been the fire chief for a while, but now you truly have the uh, the uh, the uh, the whole rank and, and and everything. Do you still get out of the office and, and try to at least hit a firehouse? So I've been fortunate lately. Uh, just this past weekend, we had a uh, two alarm uh, garden apartment fire and was able to be out with the troops and uh, kind of watch their performance uh, as they interacted with the community. And I don't think I ever am out as much as I'd like to be, but uh, I have been able to get out here recently and uh, watch watch the guys and girls uh, perform. And that's really kind of my role now as, we, as I go out to these multi-alarm fires. Uh, it's kind of tough for me to hold back and not engage and uh, not take a command role. But now my role is really just to kind of watch the overall operations and let the battalion chiefs, the assistant chiefs, the deputy chiefs kind of do their job and just support them however I can and make sure all their needs are met. And uh, it's really enjoyable standing back at the the fire ground and and watching the caliber of employee we have uh, really out serving the citizens. It's it's really the the treat of my current position. It's got to be, you know, very satisfying to be able to sit back and not have to say a word and just watch things happen. And uh, things things going right, you know, with, with the, regardless of how big the fire is, that these guys going to the right spot, you know, taking the hose lines in and doing the right thing, hearing the radio, listening to the incident commander do his thing, knowing, you know, having that confidence confidence that they have everything under control, you know, as a fire chief. You, at that point, when things are going well, as the fire's out, you can go around and, you know, shake some babies and kiss some hands or something like that and just, you know, letting everybody know that, uh, you know, hey, guys, you did, guys did a good job. And, uh and again, I can't stress the amount, you know, and, and the, the, the department, size departments that we work in, having those bosses come out and uh, validate the work that uh, those guys are out there doing in the, in the cold and in the heat and, and, and the snow and the rain and everything day in and day out that it's appreciated. And, and uh, you know, that's going to pay dividends as a leader of an organization. You're going to get the respect and those guys are going to go to bat for the bosses when it's time, 
you know, to give your opinion or give their opinion of, of, of how the organization is. It's going to be great for morale um, to be able to, to say, like, yeah, we got a good chief. He's a good guy. He really cares for us. He's a fireman. Um, he, uh, he understands what we're going through. And even though we don't get everything we want, we know we know he's trying. He's not giving us lip service. So that that's going to be fantastic for morale. Well, and, and, and quite honestly, that, that is really the fun part of the job, right? All the office hours, all the meetings, you know, all the interactions, it, it all proves to be worthwhile when, when the troops are out there really providing service, really, uh, you know, truly rescuing people in, in their real time of need. And, and I'm really fortunate to work in a great organization that has great people on all levels, uh, career and volunteer, that really come together seamlessly uh, to really answer the call. Yeah, and it's it's nice to know that you know, being that you have a fire chief or a fire chief that's that's transparent that lets everybody know you know here's what the uh, you know here's what our strategic plan is for the year going forward here's our five year plan here's the budget here's what they're looking to cut out of the budget they said I have to reduce by a certain percentage these are the things that I'm looking to cut I don't agree with it but this is the list the least amount of impact. Being transparent like that and explaining, you know, the why behind the reasoning as opposed to doing things secretive, um, people might not like it, but at the end of the day, they're like, hey, at least we know what's coming. We know why he's doing it. And uh, again, that's going to pay, you know, dividends as you move forward. It's going to give you that credibility as that fire chief and, and uh, you know, budget time always sucks and, and uh, you're, they're always looking to cut something and... Uh, People have to understand that that uh, management is is looking at the least amount of impact to make the percentages that the uh, politicians are looking for. So that's why that's why I'll never be a fire chief anywhere. Never be the fire chief anywhere. So more power to you. Um, <laughs> I, I would end up getting fired because I'd probably drop an f bomb in county council, and it's probably frowned upon in some of these. Yeah, it's definitely uh, it was, not recommended. <laughs> definitely not recommended. But understanding that uh, you know you have a department that uh, that is there for. Uh, and for the people that work there, as well as those people are well trained in being able to uh, serve the citizens um, respectfully and, and uh, uh, with confidence and competency um, is is important. So it's got to be nice to go to work and, and and be able to look around and go, those guys out there are doing it, and I really don't have to do much. Yeah, it, it's a great feeling, and it's because of the caliber of our workforce that we're able to get that done. Yeah. So <clears throat> we're at that witching hour, Tommy. So, uh, again, I appreciate uh, having you on the show and, and uh, just being able to kind of peek into a chief's, you know, a chief of the department's mind of, of how things work and, and where they came from gives people these understandings that, you know, chief officers, you know, they work their way through the ranks. They just aren't one day tumble out and become a chief. They, they've felt all the things that the people on the floor felt, you know, as when they were a rookie and how they felt small. And as they move through the ranks, they understand, you know, all the, you know, the, the heartaches and, and, you know, the, the terrible calls and the good calls and the firehouse camaraderie. You've been through that, uh, coming up through the ranks like you did, you know, people would never question, uh, that you haven't been there and done that. And, uh, I think that's a testament to to you as a chief officer in your department. So, again, congratulations, and, and thanks a lot for being on the show. And I'll give you the last word. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a really enjoyable time. And really, all I have to share is, is take every opportunity to get every piece of education you can, uh, train as much as you can, and, and meld that with your life experience to uh, do good by your coworkers, do good by your officers, 
uh, do good by your subordinates and uh, serve the citizens. So uh, it's been great being here today, and uh, I appreciate you inviting me. Thanks a lot, and I'll I'll, I'll see you around our county where we live in. <laughs> Without a doubt. Have a good one. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Side Alpha Leadership. Uh, go back and listen to uh, all the other uh, episodes that we have. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook as well as Twitter. Or you can email me at sidealphaleadership at gmail.com.